Well, we are going to continue into Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation that I've talked about and I've shared, and I just want to remind very quickly that, you know, there are lots of things in the book of Revelation different people disagree upon. Theologians, Bible students, they don't agree on everything and how to interpret everything because there is so much symbolism, and that's okay. And what I'm sharing with you, obviously, is from what I believe the Bible shows us. And I always want to share with you that that's my belief, especially in areas where I know there's disagreement um, in the way they interpret things. So I'm coming from the perspective when we look into Revelation that one, I believe, is a believer, a true believer. His salvation is secure in Christ. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not something we lose and hopefully get again and then lose and hopefully get again. I believe once we are truly saved, we are secure in Christ. So I'm coming from that perspective. Also, I shared a lot of time uh, last week, uh, a little bit the week before, about the overcomers in the book of Revelation, especially as we look at the seven churches, that I believe the overcomers are the true Christians. I believe once you truly accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are one of those overcomers. The promises and the word of God are for us. And I acknowledge that there are people that define the overcomers differently than that. One of the scriptures that I shared last week is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Who is the one who overcomes? The world. But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 4 said, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, our faith in Jesus. So I believe that and the many other scriptures are what I build my foundation of, of believing that overcomers are truly truly the the Christians when we get saved. And I say all that because it's important how you see those things is how you interpret a lot of the book of Revelation. As we look at the seven churches, I want to just have the map up there one more time, just so you kind of see where we're at in this particular era. That is present-day Turkey, where all of these churches are located. These were not the only churches in the Bible, and they really weren't even the only most significant churches in the Bible. I believe, and there's different reasons and different beliefs, I believe these seven churches are kind of a prototype of the church as a whole. Um, There are people who believe that they show the different uh, dispensations, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, different time periods in the church age from the time the church was established until Jesus returns. And I certainly see that that is very feasible. It's obviously true that they were specific churches at the time of Christ. And these letters were written to these churches, and they were written by John in a vision that the Lord gave him on the island of Patmos. And it's interesting, as we'll see as we go through there, you'll see when it talks to the churches, he says he encourages them to listen and to hear the letters to the churches. It's plural. I believe that these letters were read to all the churches. doesn't specifically say that. But when he tells them to hear all of the letters to all the churches, and it's interesting when you look at the map, to Ephesus first, the closest to Patmos, and it's as if the Lord just goes in a circle, and the circle isn't represented as well on that map. But if you would look at the locations, it's just like he goes to Ephesus, and he comes right around, and which would bring you almost back to Ephesus. Now, as I look at the seven letters today, um, we're going to, I'm not going to be going into great, great detail. You could speak and teach on each one of these churches 
more than one week at a time easily. There is so much information you could look at. That's not my goal, to do that in-depth of a study. I'm not going to really focus on the introductions of Christ in each letter to each church, although they're significant. When you look at how Jesus describes himself in the introduction to each letter, And I'm not going to necessarily focus on the promises to the overcomers in each letter, although they are awesome also, the overcomers, especially when you realize if I'm correct and all believers are overcomers, these promises, every single one of them are for us. And I believe it's clear that they're for all believers. So what I am going to focus on is going to be more the commendation that each one receives if they get a commendation and the reprimand that each one receives for those that received a reprimand. And I'm going to, and some of them share a little bit about the history of the city when I think it's really significant in how we look at and understand what's written in the letter to that particular church. So that's my goal. And what really the underlying or the overriding goal is that as we go through these letters, we just don't look at it as ancient history. We look at it as, what can the Lord speak to me personally, individually, in each one of these letters, in both the commendations and the reprimands and the encouragements? And what can he speak to us as a church? Because I believe if we're really open as we study and look through the letters, there's things in there that are going to describe you and me. And I believe that you will see even modern-day churches that would fall into some of the categories of these churches. So my hope is that as we go through this, we allow the Holy Spirit to really speak to our heart, that we're encouraged but also challenged by the letters and the reprimands, that we're open to the Holy Spirit's correction, the Holy Spirit's redirecting maybe in our own lives so that we can apply what's in here for us, individually and as churches. So we're going to look at these churches, and I'm not sure how far we'll get in the seven churches. I am going to read the letter to each church, and it's going to be in kind of small print on the screen. I wasn't even going to put it up there, but just in case someone didn't have a Bible, electronic or otherwise, I wanted you to at least be able to see it. But I would encourage you to have a Bible, because I'm not going to always read all the scriptures. I'll just make reference to them. So we're going to start in Revelation 2, Verse 1, Revelation 2, verse 1, the first of the letters, and this one is written to the church of Ephesus. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. A brief introduction to Jesus. And then it says, I know your deeds, which you'll read over and over in every letter. I know your deeds. He knows everything. He knows everything about you. You can try to hide it, but it won't work. He knows. And he goes on and says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice plural. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church in Ephesus, a lot of times just labeled the loveless church. Their love is going, growing weak. They have lost their first love. And really, I said that wrong. They have left their first love. They have left their first love. When you read it the way it's written, it's clear they've made a choice. They have left their first love. Notice when he commends them. He starts out and commends them as a church. He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your toil. If you'll study the words, they're putting forth the effort. I know your work. I know your toil. I know how you have persevered in the face of persecution. I know that you would like sound doctrine. You've studied. You test the words of the teachers. You've identified the false apostles. You are one who loves sound doctrine. You have endured hardship for his name, my name, and have not grown weary. And you hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. I think it's interesting, that last little part. And you have hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. I think it's obvious, or I hope it is, that we are to love the things that God loves, starting with people. But we are also to hate the things that God hates. I think one of the things that's happened in the American church especially is we're willing to accept the things that God hates. I think one of the things we'll see as we go through all of the churches is how it is so easy to invite these things in or to allow our standards to slip. And when the, Nicol- when, when the church in Ephesus, if they would have embraced the practices of the Nicolaitans, that's sin in God's eyes. And after he tells them all these nice things, he says, nevertheless, you have forsaken You have left your first love. Repent and do these things. Our first love, that first overwhelming infatuation that accompanies real love. Remember the feeling with your spouse, maybe with your children. Hopefully when your first accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That first love, that overwhelming desire to know him better, to be in his presence. He's saying you've left it. It's left. We oftentimes point at that new Christian and say, "Ah, just give him time and they'll calm down. Wow, what a horrible thing to say what we should be saying. What's wrong with you and me? Why have we calmed down? I'm not referring to acting silly or foolish or doing crazy things. I'm talking about being so enthused and passionate about our new life in Christ, discovering who he is and who he's declared us to be. It should be something that is a fire that we can't contain. And for many of us, it was that at one time. For many of us, I hope it still is that. But for way too many of us, we would fall into this snare that the church in Ephesus had fallen into. We've lost our first love. And what does he say? How do you get it back? 
Because if we remember it, we want it back. He says, first of all, it starts with what? Repent. Repent. Turn away from the direction you're going and get back on the right track. And what's he say to do first? He says, remember. 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 Not in just a way that we're going to talk about the good old days as something that was so neat, but it's gone, never to be gotten again. It says, remember. Remember why? Remember what it was like. So you remember where you've fallen from in this process of losing your first love, letting go of it. So you can realize what's happened. Remember, ask yourself, how did I get here if that's you? And then, of course, repent, reverse course. And then he says, do again what you did at first. Now, I realize we don't always respond the same way. But he's saying, do what you did at first. What did the early church do at first when the early church was being established? After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the church was formed, what did they do? What did a lot of us do when we first got saved? Man, we got in the word. We wanted to learn more about this Jesus that we'd heard about but never knew in a personal way. So we were in the word. We couldn't get enough of the word. We were in prayer. We were communicating with him. We were talking to him, developing an intimacy by communication through his word and through prayer, meditating on his word. And we couldn't hardly get enough of getting together and talking about it. Fellowship. Fellowship with like-minded believers. And then for some of us, the next thing really got us in trouble because we didn't do it real well. But sharing, evangelizing, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. If you were that excited about Jesus and he has done this amazing thing in our life and we believe it's all true and it's all real, why would we want to keep it a secret? We would say we don't. You know, this is one of my, I don't want to say favorite things to do because sometimes I feel guilty when I do it. But one of the things that I kind of like to do sometimes is ask some of us, do you enjoy coming to church at Victory? What brought you here? What do you like about it? There must be something you like about it if you're still here and you come back. And I'll hear things like, oh, we, we really love the church. We feel so welcomed. We feel loved. God, we feel like the word of God is being taught. We love the fellowship. And then I like to say, well, who have you invited recently? Who have you shared those things with? The world's perception of church isn't like what I just described. The world's perception of church is this stodgy place full of hypocrites, so you're going to go in and just be uncomfortable for an hour and hopefully get the heck out of there as quick as you can. But you know what they're starving for? All those things that I just mentioned. They're looking for a place where they feel loved and accepted. They're looking for a place where they can fellowship and discover relationships with people that really do care. They're looking for truth in a world where truth is becoming so abstract. It moves all the time according to the culture. They're looking for those things. And we have an opportunity to share those things. Do again what you did at the first. And he does say to them, all of the overcomers, you will get to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And I believe that is talking about salvation. Not just eternal life, but salvation, eternal life with Christ, because the reality is what? Everybody's going to live eternally. 
It's just a matter of location. It's kind of like in real estate. Location, location, location. We want to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. We don't want to experience the fire and torment and torture of hell for eternity. And if we believe those things are real, and those are the two options, how can we not go back and share with people the good news of Christ? The church in Ephesus. The church in Smyrna, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Another interdiction of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And then he says these words, I know your affliction, and I know your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This church is one of the two churches that did not receive a reprimand. It was all commendation. But one of the things that comes through real clearly is, Christians, you're going to suffer. It's not all sweet. It's not all a bed of roses. There's going to be persecution. And it's interesting to me that this is one of the cities that received no rebuke, no reprimand. Because when you look at the other cities and you, and you look at them and say, where are they today? A lot of them don't exist today. This particular city in Turkey does exist. It's no longer called Smyrna, it's called Izmir. And not only does it exist, it's not some little village in a desert or on a mountain peak. It is a thriving city of over 3 million people, yet today. At the time when this letter was written, it was really a center of emperor worship. The Caesars, Roman emperors, would require people to worship them as Lord. As a matter of fact, they would build temples in these different cities. I believe Izmir is the one that had at least three huge temples just for emperor worship. And of course, then the other pagan gods that they would worship. This is where they lived. This is where they were surrounded. And he says, you people, the church of Smyrna, your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. The Christians of Smyrna really suffered. They suffered persecution. And again, one of the things that's noteworthy is you may don't see it in the Bible, but if you read the history at all, most of the persecution of the early first century church didn't come from Rome. A lot of it did, but most of the persecution came from Jews or people who proclaimed they were Jews. And Jesus has a unique way of describing them as the synagogue of Satan. He even refers to Satan's throne in one of the cities. He says, you're spiritually rich. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is talking, and he's addressing the, spirit, the, the religious leaders, the Jews, and where, where this synagogue of Satan thing comes from. Jesus himself said to them, you, of, you are of your father, the devil. 
He told them that right to their face. And we see in these letters, he references them as being of Satan and synagogue of Satan more than once. And in this particular church, he also reminds them that the persecution is going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And his, his encouragement or his exhortation or his command, if you would, is be, be fearless and faithful to the point of death. One of the things that the, the Christians in Smyrna, and I started to mention this, is, was the economic. They were probably the poor, they would have been the lower class economically in the city of Smyrna. Because you can imagine in the religious powers of the Jewish people, being a Christian, being an outspoken Christian, sharing your faith wasn't good for your jobs. It wasn't good for your security. Your earthly security would be wiped away because of the persecution that you had to endure. And he tells them, if you persevere, you will receive the crown of life. You know, though they may kill the body, they cannot kill the spirit. And it's interesting, in Smyrna, you may have heard of a bishop named Polycarp. Any of you heard of him? He was from Smyrna. He was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century, about 160 A.D., something like that. And I just mentioned him because of his martyrdom. He was arrested, and, and they were going to kill him. And the Roman leaders just said, hey, all you got to do to avoid this is renounce Christ and acknowledge the emperor as Lord. And he refused. And you might want to read about him because the story and what he said and what he spoke, according to historians, is really powerful. But he refused to do it. So they had gathered the wood together and they were going to burn him at the stake and they were going to, they were going to tie him so he wouldn't try to flee or fight the flames. And he said, now you don't need to tie me up. I'm not going anywhere. I'm paraphrasing a little. I'm not going anywhere. My Lord's sufficient no matter what. So when he would not renounce Christ, they lit the fire. And the fire and the sticks and the branches and the wood just started to flame and it flame formed an arch over the top of Polycarp and didn't touch him. They finally had to stab him with the spear to kill him because the fire couldn't consume him. Be faithful and fearless, even unto death, was the message to the church at Smyrna. The church in Pergamum, or Pergamus, it says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In other words, he's, he's saying, I know where you live. It's tough. I know what you're going through. It's tough. And he even says, where Satan has his throne. Now, it's not a literal throne. It's just this place where the power of the devil, the power of the enemy was so strong and so powerful here in this city. And he says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who have held or hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. This theme of eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality runs through many 
of all of these churches. Likewise, you have also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, the prefer- the, probably referring to the provision of God. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The church in Pergamos. A lot of times it's referred to as the compromising church. Where does compromising come from? If they were a solid church, if you're a solid church, where does the spirit of compromise come from? Why would we begin to compromise? Well, there's many different reasons, many different things that can cause us to compromise. One is a fear of offending people, of being standing out in our culture, taking a stand on the truth that's unpopular. Sometimes compromise enters the church because we've got loved ones that are in sin, but we don't want to call it sin because we love them. Some of these things sound so familiar. This compromising spirit creeps in to the church. It was nicknamed Satan's City because it was so evil. There was so much pagan worship. The emperor worship that was promoted in many of the cities. The worship of Zeus and other pagan gods was prevalent. And he's encouraging this church by saying, hey, I know where you live, yet you remain true to me. You did not renounce your faith even when they killed Antipas, another martyr, one of the faithful ones of God. And even after this, he still has a nevertheless to reprimand them. Even though they were faithful in some areas, they had allowed compromise to creep in in other areas. And a lot of that came from idolatry and listening to false teaching. The teaching of Balaam, the sexual immorality, the eating of meats worshipped or sacrificed to idols. The teaching that comes into a church, the false doctrine, it is why it's so important There are the essentials of the faith. There are doctrines that we cannot ever compromise. And they are clear as crystal in the scriptures. Now there are things that we don't have to worry about so much, that we can fellowship with other believers and we can can disagree on some of the things like I've said in interpreting even in Revelation. But the essential doctrines of the church cannot be compromised. When false doctrine creeps in, it's, it's insidious in its deception. It starts out by sounding kind of good, and it sounds good because it starts to appeal to our flesh. We start to change the meaning of things that used to be crystal clear in the Word of God to gray. And then before long, all of a sudden, we are calling that which is good evil and that which is evil now good. And it doesn't just jump out there blatant right off the get-go. It slowly begins to creep in. And it's done in our culture, through our courts, through the culture. I got an email this week, and, and it was uh, suggesting that I go to a site. And I went into the site, and I listened to live testimony that was taking place in a committee room up at our Capitol. 
And one of the reasons they sent it to me, it had to do with counselors. And they're trying to get a law, add, add to a law, kind of an amendment or an addendum, that would make it wrong, punishable, and they don't describe, they're using all the vague terms, but it all is saying you better not counsel those that are confused about sexual identity and gender. Because if you do, you're going to be punished. First step, they don't describe the punishment. For professional counselors, they say your organization should reprimand you at the very least. But, of course, it's okay to counsel in that area as long as you, guess what, encourage. But don't try to change them. And it was such a blessing on the one side because the people I saw testifying, most of them, probably I saw about seven or eight and all but one of them, proclaimed how thankful they were that there was counseling out there that led them to Jesus Christ and making a commitment to Jesus Christ and their lives were changed. They'd been set free. They were suicidal. They'd been set free. But it's just insidious. It just sneaks in and it sounds good and it sounds acceptable. Marriage didn't become about marriage. It became about a man and woman. It became a topic of discussion of love. Can't we all just love people? No. That's not the argument. Yes, we're called to love people, all people. But they won the argument. Abortion's not about a life. It's about convenience. And it's accepted in the culture and creeping into the churches. In so many ways, we are no different than this particular church in Pergamum. Standing strong in some areas, compromise in other areas. It creeps in. And Jesus says, repent, repent. And he says, I will give the manna, which appears to be a reference to the manna when they were in the wilderness, the manna in the Ark of the Covenant, representing the provision of God. And this is a white stone. And there's lots of explanations of what that white stone could be, but one of them seems to make a lot of sense. In the Roman culture, a lot of times, if there was competitions or rewards or you did something well, they gave you a white stone, and it was like a free pass. Want to go into the Roman theater? Show the white stone. Want to go here? Go there? Show the white stone. And speaking here, white stone could represent our entry into the kingdom of God. The church in Pergamos. The church in Thyatira, Revelation 2, verse 18, says this. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. God, their good deeds, their works, it's even better than it was in the beginning. Not like the church of Philadelphia, which was going backwards. It says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. There we are again. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. 
unless you repent of their ways. I will strike your children dead, then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Thyatira was an interesting city in many ways. It was known for its businesses, its trades, its trade guilds. Most of these cities were on very significant trade routes. In that sense, they were significant churches. People were passing through them all the time. And this particular city, they were known for expensive dyes, especially purple dye. And they were known for fine linens. Pagan worship was everywhere. Emperor worship again. Here there was sun god and Apollo was primarily worshipped. But there was a connection between the trade guilds, the unions of the day, if you would, and the pagan religions. They were connected in their occult practices. If you read about the the Christians in Thyatira, you can see that they would be on the outs economically in this prosperous, prosperous city for their faith in the persecution. God says, I I know your deeds, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And they're even increasing in the midst of all of this persecution that you're facing. But even so, again, the great commendation, but even so you've let this teachings of Jezebel, a self-declared prophetess, come in with her doctrines and her teaching and leading my people into sexual immorality, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols again. And he says, I gave her time to repent. And she didn't want to. I think there's a lesson there we need to grab a hold of. He wants us to repent. He wants us to get right with him. His desire is an intimate relationship with him. Even the most vile and evil that we can do, he still wants us. He will convict us by his Holy Spirit, and we need to be quick to repent because there is a point, and I don't know where that point is, where we see in the Scripture, he turned them over to the hardness of heart. And here he says to Jezebel, and, and not only to Jezebel, but those who commit adultery with her. And I don't believe he's talking about physical sex, even though that was part of the whole worship. I believe committing adultery with her would be adulterating and believing the lies and the false teaching and the false doctrine, sharing in this idea that sexual immorality was somehow okay. And in verse 24, go back back to the scripture verse, would you please? In verse 24, it says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Those deep secrets that not all of us can understand. That new revelation that's just for the elite few who get it and then they want to share it with us and teach it to us. It sounds enticing, it sounds intriguing, but it doesn't necessarily line up with the word of God. It's deceptive and it's subtle. 
Really, it's so deceptive and it's so subtle. I mean, you don't understand it, but once you experience it and enter into it, you'll, then you'll get it. There is so much of that that it sounds like teachings of today. I've received new revelation. As a matter of fact, I'm supposed to write a book. And if you, you, you'll understand and you'll, you'll gain the revelation after you see what I'm talking about. It's the deep things of God. Well, I have a teacher that will teach me the deep things of God, and he's called the Holy Spirit. And he will teach us what we need to know. These deep things of God that we need to experience to understand, we need to be very, very, very careful with. Because they will appeal to the flesh, and the experience appeals to our flesh, and therefore, yeah, yeah that's okay. We'll take that. that that's, there's nothing really wrong with that. I mean, it feels so good. How can God not like that? It just feels right to me. How can God not like that? That must not be what he meant. And that's kind of where Jezebel was coming from. These deeper things leading to, in this case, sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Hold fast, no matter what. Doctrine is important. A foundation based on doctrine that's sound and truth from the word of God, those non-essentials, it's important, it's critical. It's what keeps us on track. We cannot forget the sound doctrine. The church in Sardis, Revelations chapter 3. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the, and the seven stars. I believe the seven spirits of God is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and the seven attributes or characteristics of the Holy Spirit. He says, I know your deeds and you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. They are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white, and I will never blot out their name from the book of life but will acknowledge your name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis was a wealthy city. It was a rich city. Again, it was on the trade routes, but it was a city that was filled with sexual immorality. It was filled with wealth that led to a focus on luxury and excess. It kind of was like Rome in that regard. The wealth, the excess, it was all about seeking pleasure, seeking luxury. And when you read this, notice there's no caution or no word about persecution. I know you're being, it wasn't mentioned. Notice there's no talk about false doctrine. None at all. I think, and I'm making an assumption here, but it appears to me this church that had a great reputation wasn't a threat to anybody. It wasn't a threat to the Romans. 
It wasn't a threat to the religious Jews. It wasn't a threat to Satan himself. They were dead. The Spirit of God was not present. Their worship, spiritless. God commands them, wake up. Wake up. Come out of that spiritual slumber that you're in. Wake up. The dulled senses can be brought back to life. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I mean, you're in such a dangerous place. Even what's left is about to die. But God hasn't given up on this church. He's, already, he's declared it's, a, it's dead. You're spiritually dead, but he's not given up. One of the reasons is because there are some in that church that are faithful. Remember what you have received and heard about and obey it. Keep it and repent. And it's encouraging to me that we can see darkness settle into places. We can see where there's no life or appears no life. And sometimes it's even in those churches, you know, they say they've got a great reputation. Boy, that church, they've got this, they've got this, they've got this, they've got this. Really? Are they advancing the kingdom? Are they a threat to the, to the kingdom of the devil? Is there evangelism? Are people coming to know Christ? Are people being set free? Are they getting delivered? Is anything happening? They're dead. But Revelation 3, 4 says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. That time in the religious circles, soiled garments, dirty clothes, disqualified you from worship. And it brought dishonor unto God if you tried to worship with soiled garments. But even in that environment, there was a faithful few. I'm going to stop there, I guess, because I want to spend time on the next two churches and I don't want to hurry through it. But I want to encourage you to read these two chapters. Read about these churches. I want to even challenge you even again right now when when you've been going through these Was the Holy Spirit speaking to you in any area of your life? My life. Are we still living in our first love? Are there those areas of compromise that we're allowing to creep in to our lives? Are we embracing sound doctrine or are we always looking for the new next thing that's coming down the pike? Is our security in the things of the world? Or are we hanging on and trusting that our security is in Christ? And as you study the church that we haven't got to yet, are you lukewarm? We'll read about that and talk about that next week. But if any of those things are things that are in your life like they were in mine or are in mine, you need to do something really quick, and that's called repent. Repent. Look back on where you've come from. Turn and go back and do the things that we did at the first. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we've looked into these letters so far in Revelation, God, that you use them to teach us what you want us to know. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher. You are our comforter, you are our encourager. 
You will discipline us. Your word says you discipline those whom you love. Lord, I pray you would help us by your spirit. Give us the grace to respond in obedience quickly. That we would return to that first love if we've wandered from it. That we would only find our security in you and not the things of the world. That we would look for compromise and crush it with the truth of the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would fan that flame of fire in us again. That we couldn't contain it, that we would have to share it with the world around us for your glory and for your honor. Lord, as we go our way, I pray your protection over us, especially as we drive on these roads. Lord, once again, I, I pray you would just keep Emily on our minds and hearts that we would pray for her as she's battling this sickness. Lord, we pray you would be with them and with that family. And we pray you would give us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with others. Give us the words to speak and let our hearts be just overflowing with love for each one that we share with. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.